the stroke of the midnight hour, on the 15th of August, 1975, a column of tanks and infantrymen rolled ominously to the streets of central Dhaka. The destination was the house of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the first Prime Minister of Bangladesh, who had recently led Bangladesh to a brutal liberation struggle against Pakistan in 1971. But the army wasn't there to celebrate. Frustrated by increasing economic mismanagement, growing corruption, and increasing authoritarianism, some members of the army decided to take matters into their own hands. And on that warm August night, as India and Pakistan celebrated 28 years of freedom from the British, Bangladesh saw the assassination of its founding father and the massacre of his entire family. So ever since the inception of the state, Bangladesh has always had a messy transfer of power. And today, nearly 50 years after that massacre, the ghosts of its past still seem to haunt its politics. And this election is no different. Because today, the leader of Bangladesh is none other than Sheikh Hasina, the daughter of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, who's led the country for the past 14 years. Facing up against her is the opposition BNP, led by Khalid Azia, the wife of the dictator Zia-ur-Rahman, who succeeded Sheikh Hasina's father in very questionable circumstances. So the Bangladesh election has all the makings of the perfect South Asian family drama. You have two powerful women leading historical dynasties who are engaged in a decades-long blood feud, alongside a complex cast of supporting characters, multiple diverging subplots, and, of course, the inexplicable presence of foreign actors who seem to have a questionable role in the entire story. We're going to explore all this and more on this episode of Beyond the Indus. Stay tuned. Before we move on to the main content of the show, I have to address the missing Englishman in the room. I'm talking, of course, about Joe Wallen, my friend, partner, and now former co-host. Exactly one year ago, Joe and I decided to start Beyond the Indus so we could give you, our listeners, deep and meaningful insights into one of the world's most fascinating and diverse regions, South Asia. In that time, and with your help, we've grown Beyond the Indus into one of South Asia's leading news and political podcasts. But unfortunately, the world has too much demand for a talent like Joe Wallen, and he's moved on to bigger and better things. So even as we bid goodbye to Joe's stories about fighting snakes in his office, his ongoing battles against sunburn, and most importantly, his rich and vivid experiences as a leading journalist in South Asia, we at the Beyond the Indus team are going to continue bringing you long-form, objective, and unbiased analyses through one of the most exciting election years in South Asia. So, Joe, we're going to miss you here, but as you always say, onwards and upwards. So welcome to Beyond the Indus election special series, The Road to 24. Over the next year, we're going to see some of the world's biggest and most important elections take place, as more than 2 billion people across 50 countries head to the polls. And South Asia is no different. We're going to begin this election year covering a country that is possibly the world's greatest economic comeback story, Bangladesh. Emerging out of the war, famine, and poverty, Bangladesh today has emerged as one of the world's largest textile exporters, and is richer than both India and Pakistan on a per capita basis. And it's this success and Bangladesh's growing role in the global economy that makes this election coming up in January particularly interesting, not just for the geopolitics of South Asia, but the wider shifts in the global order. So to help us decode that election, we've brought on two amazing guests. So Dr. Mubashar Hassan holds a PhD in politics from Griffith University, Australia, and is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Culture Studies and Oriental Languages in the University of Oslo, Norway. He is the author of the book, Islam and Politics, The Followers of Ummah, 
and co-editor of the book Masks of Authoritarianism, Hegemony, Power, and Public Life in Bangladesh. Uh, Mubashar has some brilliant pieces on geopolitics in The Diplomat, which I encourage you all to check out. Uh, and his short-form articles were published in the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs, Foreign Policy Magazine, USIP, and Al Jazeera, among others. While Dr. Smriti S. Patnayak is a research fellow at the Manohar Parker Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis, she holds a PhD in South Asian Studies from the School of International Studies in JNU and specializes on politics in South Asia and India's policy towards its neighbors. Her work includes more than 100 research articles on politics and diplomacy in South Asia, as well as editing four books on geopolitics in South Asia with an upcoming book titled 50 Years of Bangladesh's War of Liberation. Uh, Smriti has also published an excellent long-form article on Bangladesh's make-or-break election in The Diplomat magazine, uh, which I found to be extremely useful in clarifying what exactly is going on on the ground in Bangladesh. So, Smriti and Mubashar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, for sure. Fantastic. So, Smriti, starting with you, I think it's imperative for us to understand the two main players uh, in the Bangladesh election right now. We have the Awami League that's led by Sheikh Hasina, who's the current prime minister, and the main opposition, the Bangladesh National Party, uh, led by Khaled Azia. So before we delve in, into the present election, maybe we can go over these two parties. How did they form and how did they play a role in overthrowing the military government back in the 90s? And how has it rivalry worked in the years uh, subsequent to that until, let's say, the 2006 election? So could you describe these two parties' journeys? I would say that, of course, uh, the Army League was there uh, as a political party uh, and it played a very significant role uh, during Bangladesh's war of Libertas in 1971. And uh, in many ways, uh, it was uh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman was responsible for mobilizing the population at that point of time against the policies of Pakistan, uh, which it adopted in terms of the uh, culture, uh, imposition of Urdu language, and denial of democracy, especially after 1970 elections. So, in that sense, he, he was one of the leaders who played a very dominant role. And in fact, in his name, uh, the Liberation War was fought. In, I would say that he inspired this entire Liberation War, though front-ranking leaders from Army League uh, played a very significant role, uh, including uh, you know the student leaders, peasant leaders, peasants, con people, uh, the teachers, and also the armed forces of um, Bangladesh, if one can say that, who defected from the Pakistan army at that point of time. So in that context, uh, General Jawur Rahman uh, was uh, the person who declared Bangladesh's independence in the name of Mujibur Rahman. But I think subsequently, obviously, uh, to a very large extent, uh, the 1975 assassination of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, and uh, there was this expectation he could have acted to stop, uh, you know, the assassination plot, and he had knowledge of it. So there is this grievance that he knew it and he did not do it. And of course, uh, after uh, the assassination of Sheikh Mujib. Uh, General Jiao uh, Rahman uh, took over and also at the same time he should be credited in uh, putting back the organizational structure of the Bangladesh army which in fact was completely politicized due to their role in the liberation war. Most importantly, probably one of the grievances uh, which uh, you know um, many liberal uh, people also hold that uh, he in fact rehabilitated uh, the religious political parties who were banned by um, Sheikh Mujib after Bangladesh was uh, liberated. Of course, uh, Jio was assassinated, all of us, we know, in 1982. There was this, uh, you know, the military regime continued in 1990. But uh, if you look at the movement uh, in the 19, uh, mid-80s against 
you know, General Ersatz, regime. And that part of time, I would say that all the political parties came together, uh, you know, to fight um, against uh, General Ersatz regime. So there was quite cooperation and all. In fact, the student leaders also played a very significant role. Uh, so therefore, this rivalry grew much more, uh, you know, due to the kind of competitive politics, which uh, uh, became uh, much apparent uh, after the restoration of democracy. And it has gone now to such an extent that both leaders even don't, don't even want to speak to each other. Uh, you know, yes, you are rivals, you don't speak to each other, you don't agree uh, on particular issues. But at least there has to be some kind of communication. And I think, uh, you know, both... Uh, Mm, these uh, political leaders were very significant political leaders, so really lead to very uh, important political parties of Bangladesh. But you know, when you don't have conversation uh, among each other, you may disagree. I'm not saying that it's necessary of agree, but the thing is that you don't even want to look at uh, somebody's face. You know, that actually is something what you see on the ground in the politics, apart from the kind of stress which our military has taken after being uh, in power for more than uh, 15 years. I would say. Right. And actually, that brings to mind uh, something that happened where Sheikh Hasina or the Awami League in this election, when the U.S. was asking exactly what you were suggesting to talk more to your opposition, she uh, said, why don't you talk more to Donald Trump? So I found that those parallels quite interesting. But Mubashir, there's another player in this entire political schema, and that is the Jamaat-e-Islami. What we've heard of them, at least outside Bangladesh and in India, where I'm based right now, is their role in the Liberation War of 1971 where a lot of people suggest that they played a supportive role to the Pakistan army that was committing a genocide in Bangladesh at that point. They seem to have evolved and they seem to uh, have some sort of an alliance or tie-up with the BNP. So could you explain the role of the Jamaat-e-Islami? How have they grown and what has led to this tie-up between Khalid Azia's BNP and the Jamaat-e-Islami? So Jamaat-e-Islami is an ideologically um, Islamist party that was established in India by Maulana Maududi. It used to be known as Jamaat-e-Islami Hind, and then he migrated, I think, around the time of partition to Pakistan. When Bangladesh was part of Pakistan, so it used to be known as East Pakistan, Jamaat-e-Islami had support base there, and during the war of 1971, Jamaat-e-Islami sided with the Pakistani army, and it supported the genocide crime that took place against the Bangladeshis. In my research, I found that one of the reasons they supported Pakistani army is it was premised upon anti-Indian mindset. They are good in their documents that uh, India is a Hindu country and uh, Bangladesh is a Muslim, East, pa East Pakistan is a Muslim country. So it is a conspiracy by the non-Muslim to break a Muslim nation. So that was the premise of it. And after the independence, the party was banned by Sheikh Muriwa Rahman. After the independence, what Jamaat did is that they campaigned against Sheikh Mujibur's government, especially in the Middle East, and said that this is a secular country that is anti-Islam and so forth. And following his deplorable assassination, Jamaat was rehabilitated into Bangladesh politics. And when Sheikh Hasina came into power in 2009, she established a war crimes tribal, which is, uh, and then majority of the top leadership of Jamaat was hanged. Uh, that trial had a lot of criticism by the human rights groups and independent observers. And then Jamaat went underground. There are a lot of state repression on them. So recently, I investigated for an article for the diplomat. What is the role of, I mean, what is Jamaat doing now? And I found in my investigation that the party is thriving in a manner. So their membership, in fact, increased a lot. And they do 
they did a lot of strategic moves. So, for example, they do not say anymore their activists that they are Jamaat publicly, but they have kind of infiltrated in many ways. Maybe infiltrated is a wrong word. And the significant shift in Jamaat is that the youth leadership who were not born in 1971. So you have a you have hundreds and thousands of Islamist Muslim who are followers of Jamaat who didn't born in 1971. So you it is difficult for anyone to point finger to them that you committed atrocity crime. Against the backdrop of this authoritarianism, there are there is a thriving anti-government mindset within which Jamaat is taking part and campaigning. Having said that, the distinction between the relationship between Bangladesh's main opposition, BNP and Jamaat, is that BNP is not officially saying that they, they are uh, going to spearhead an anti-government movement with Jamaat. Because there is an internal party politics as well, in my understanding, is that previously, um, especially around 2014, when there's a lot of bloodshed in Bangladesh, and in 2013, about, about 500 people died in Bangladesh in political clash and state repression and so forth. And Jamaat claimed the credit. So they, internationally and diplomatically, they claimed that it is our street force that is the most powerful. BNP do not have that street force. And that kind of, in my understanding, that kind of uh, challenged the young leadership of Tarek Roman. And when he took the power of the party from exile in London in 2018, in my understanding, he said that we need to show that we are also popular. And that is why they are making, they're keeping a distance, at least publicly, like, and to what Wasir was uh, saying, I think it's correct. The Jamaat, I think last year probably it said that uh, since uh, PNP is uh, having its own program, uh, where, uh, you know, if Jamaat is not associated, they have not consulted us. So we are making, uh, you know, we are parting our way uh, uh, from the PNP. Uh, but uh, this particular, the an interesting thing which happened on the 28th of October, in fact, I was thought that probably Jamaat is planning to uh, put its uh, candidate, though I spoke to some of them uh, when I was in Dhaka. Uh, I can say that uh, that, but in that, in, they also held a rally on the same date, but uh, without permission. And the government uh, did not take any action against them. Uh, so that actually surprised me. Probably somewhere uh, the government was trying to bring them. And another thing is that Jamaat has always been on the wrong side of the history. Like, for example, if you look at 1947, the Jamaat Islamic did not support the partition of India, saying that, you know, or, you know, it doesn't. Uh, um, recognized territoriality of a particular Muslim identity and it believes in one Ummah and similarly in 1971 uh, that they also strongly believe that uh, since after uh, you know uh, Pakistan has been created uh, so in a sense this um, uh, you know Bengali uh, uh, this liberation art based on Bengali language culture Bengali identity is something again the division of the Muslims so therefore ideologically they supported that uh, so therefore, you know, these questions will be there. Jamaat has to reconcile itself with these questions. Now, the problem for Jamaat is that if, if it's going to reinvent itself without a ban by the government, the government is not going to ban them for the obvious reasons. So they can't reinvent. Because reinventing means you are accepting what happened in 1971, the Jamaat's role. And uh, so that becomes a kind of difficult, you know, you have the continuation of Jamaat. Jamaat has the cadre. Muhasir is right. They are strong. Anybody who believes that they're not there, I, I really don't agree. They're very strong. They have, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the elections where Jamaat contested in 300 seats, 
their voting percentage both in 1991 and 96 comes around 10%. Uh, when they have had a coalition with the BNP, it comes around uh, 5%. So in a sense, they have a strong presence. And it is probably economically very, very strong party. A party which can provide economical, uh, you know, job to you. Uh, a party uh, which actually takes care of its cadre if they are facing an illegal asset. So therefore, you know, it, it's a very different kind of party. So the, one of the themes that I want to emphasize here is they don't need to be in the parliament of Bangladesh. And you've also talked about Sheikh Hasina introducing, let's say, authoritarian restrictions. You've talked about how the Jamaat-e-Islami can't necessarily operate openly. And I, w- I want foreign listeners to understand why this is the case in Bangladesh right now, why these parties have such diverse tactics in order to continue their political activities. And to understand that, I think we want to understand what's with the state of Bangladesh elections and what sort of authority and restrictions are imposed on the opposition. Smriti, if I can draw you back to what I think was a, a turning point in Bangladesh democracy, which was the 2006 to 2008 political crisis. There's this concept that is relevant even today, something that is a central demand for the opposition, which is the imposition of a caretaker government uh, that supervises elections. Could you explain the concept of a caretaker government? And could you talk about the reasons why after coming into power in 2008, uh, the Sheikh Hasina-led Awami League decided to abolish this caretaker government. What happened in that political crisis that made her think that this was a necessary step? I think all the three political parties, when they were uh, fighting against uh, Ishat's uh, regime, uh, you know, they, there was this demand of caretaker uh, government because they could not believe a free and fair election can happen under a military dictatorship. So therefore, the political transition in 1990 uh, took place under the caretaker region. And uh, the presidential form of uh, government was transformed to a, a parliamentary form of government by uh, Begum Khalid Azia, who was the prime minister at that point of time. And uh, in uh, 2000, because that was a one-time kind of thing in 1990 uh, when the election happened. So in 1996, uh, when the first, I think it was, it was fifth parliament election, where it was one-sided election, uh, conducted by the BNP, both Jamaat and uh, Amalik, uh, in fact, uh, they um, boycotted that particular election. Uh, when BNP got elected, so obviously there was demonstration and all, and BNP, what it did, it passed uh, the constitutional provision, making it a constitutional provision of the caretaker uh, government, and it was very elaborate in terms of the successor, because six choice, uh, if I'm not mistaken, aren't given in that caretaker list, uh, which, you know, where the government uh, uh, can try one after the other. Uh, so that was something, and then of course it dissolved the parliament and the uh, election happened and the Aumali uh, won the election. A uh, 2001 election also took place under the caretaker uh, regime. But in 2005, when uh, the Chief Justice of Supreme Court, um, Justice K.M. Hassan, uh, he was supposed to retire in 2005. And uh, the government passed a uh, amendment, say, you know, increasing the uh, age of retirement of the chief justice, if I'm not mistaken, probably 63 to 65, something by two years. That the opposition, how many at that point of time, saw that this particular amendment is moved, keeping a particular person in mind who becomes the chief advisor of the caretakerism. So therefore, in 2006, when, uh, you know, the power transition was supposed to happen to a caretakerism, but that point of time, Justice Hassan also became, you know, because the amount of violence happened, he refused to uh, take over, you know, he refused to become the chief advisor of the caretaker region because he thought that if two political parties are acting like this, it is not an appropriate moment to be uh, the chief advisor because uh, election under him probably will be considered as, um, you know, partisan. 
what happened is that instead of the other four options or five options, four options which were there, the first choice and completely the last choice. Last choice was the president of Bangladesh, and he is of course the party man, um, uh, President Yawajuddin, and that actually led to a lot of violence. And that is where probably uh, my assessment is that uh, you know the Army League also saw that this is the space where you can have an extra constitutional intervention. So therefore, that was seen as an extra constitutional. This thing, though, the Supreme Court said that next to election can be held under categorism prior to you know abolishing the system. The government, in its own sense, uh, decided that it will not have the categorism. So suspicion and the manner in which the BNP. Uh, went about the categorism by increasing the, you know, the the retirement age. So somewhere I also find the BNP is responsible for this entire undermining of the category. Now it's completely, it's not there. Right. Yeah. And just to understand this better, because I think if you live in one of the many democracies around the world, like India, United States, UK, this idea of a caretaker government, a different regime that comes to power to oversee elections might be a bit foreign, a bit um, why is this necessary? Because we don't necessarily have these uh, systems. So I, I guess my question is, when Sheikh Hasina decided to abolish the caretaker government, why was this seen as such an outlandish step? Because we have election commissions, we have different institutions in our own democracies to ensure that elections are free and fair. Why was this necessary, you think? Is it just a sort of constitutional power grab by Sheikh Hasina to make sure that she can retain power for longer? Or do you think that the genuine good constitutional reasons for this system to be abolished? I think if I can go first, Mubasir uh, may also give his own views. I think, uh, you know, when you don't have a caretaker reason, it's not that uh, in South Asia you have currently Pakistan is being ruled by a caretaker regime. So the thing is that uh, yes, it's very innovative. In fact, the Pakistan categorism took clue from the Bangladesh. What you do is that, uh, you know, when you do away with the categorism, I believe that you need to have a very strong and independent election commission uh, with autonomy. So if you don't uh, want to give that kind of autonomy to the election commission, so obviously uh, there are questions which are raised, the manner in which uh, the election commission conducts the election. So therefore, the basic distrust over the process, how the election is, is conducted, here is in question. So therefore, even if you have the election, it is considered as a manipulator. And given the fact that the two political parties have, you know, very bitter relationship with each other and just don't trust each other at all. So in that context, the independence of election commission becomes much more significant uh, compared to other times. So it is seen as partisan. It is seen as, uh, you know, like, for example, in Pakistan, though not this time, of course, we know the military played a very significant role in this particular categorism in Pakistan. But the thing is that there is consultation among the political parties to find who is the neutral uh, person who can be the tactical chief. Uh, so that kind of process also, the process of consultation just does not exist in Bangladesh, I would say. So if I add is that, you know, when it was abolished in the parliament, the number of parliamentarians from the opposition BNP were four to five, really low. So we were dealing with the parliament overwhelmingly majority real with the ruling party. If you look into the independence of state institutions in Bangladesh, that doesn't exist, nowhere. So the overall structure of this caretaker government was to make sure that the election was, election takes place in a free and fair manner. And because of what happened between 2006 and 8, 
the trust is gone low. And when the election took place from 2018, 2014 and 2018, the past two elections, none of them were accepted by the independent observer and liberal democracies as free and fair. And that record itself says the motivation behind the abolishment of caretaker government. So coming to, let's say, the post-2008 regime that Sheikh Hasina has ruled, Bangladesh continuously since 2008-2009. Uh, like you said, Mubashar, uh, none of the subsequent elections have been seen as free and fair. We've seen a variety of tactics that have been used to suppress the opposition. You also mentioned a huge section of the Jamaat and opposition party being hanged because of their role in 1971. But I want to sort of build up to how this actually takes place. How does the oppression and repression of opposition take place? Could you talk about the 2015 political crisis? To my mind, it's one of the most violent and bloody sort of demonstrations against, I believe it was a 2014 election. Why did that happen? And what was the response of the Awami League government that maybe sets a tone for the elections coming up uh, in 2024? Yes, uh, that's a good question. Uh, but before going into 2015, we also need to, I also need to speak about the assassination attempts on Sheikh Hasina. So she survived, I think, at least 10 to 11 assassination attempts. The biggest one was in 2004 when there was a graded attack. Uh, on Aumili and Aumili's rally. And I think that was a turning point of the way Bangladesh politics has evolved. And then when she got to power and when there was this, not a lot of people were hanged. I mean, uh, there are numbers of people who were hanged, but also there are a lot of extrajudicial killing took place. So extrajudicial killings means uh, state forces shooting down civilians without the oversight of court and justice system. And, that, and also we have seen systematic systematization of enforced disappearance in Bangladesh. This whole thing, the 2014 crisis after the election, has its roots in 2013 uh, when this warcraft style took place, when this top leadership of Jabhat were hanged and one BNP leader were, was hanged. Because that was 2013, one year ahead of election, the opposition parties were hoping that if there is a chance of election, they will go, you know, they'll form the government and probably the record of the rivalry uh, that has been explained well by Sruti so far would see that Aumilik would be tried in different ways if the government was changed. So for Aumilik, it was not possible for them, I think, to uh, lose. And that is why they went ahead with despite a lot of international pressure by organizing this one-sided election. Um, there are a lot of opposition activists were killed. Uh, there are a lot of public properties that are burned down. Um, there are there are protests all around the country. Buses are set in fire. People are burned. One of the issues with Bangladesh violence is that when there is an opposition political campaign goes on, and because of the politicization of the state institution, there are heavy chances that some of the events are sabotaged by the state to blame the opposition. It's as dirty as it is, the politics of Bangladesh. And within that framework, that pushed Aumili to take harder strengths. And after that, I, I think she has informed the government, and I think we're going to talk about the geopolitics uh, in a bit later. So I would leave there. But uh, coming to 2015 specifically, you said there was a demonstration or a series of demonstrations against the government. There were a lot of street protests. There was a lot of violence, but you're saying the provenance of that violence is questionable. It could have been perhaps some of them. I'm not saying all of. I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying some of them. 
And there were reports in the newspapers and other places that, you know, ruling party people were also being uh, arrested while they're going to set it fire. If this is this is one of the politics, unfortunately. So now having gotten a decent overview of the politics of Bangladesh and all its complexities, I think it's time to start talking about the road to 2024. And in order to do that, I want to explore both sides, government, the ruling party rather, and the opposition and their tactics and strategies. So beginning with the opposition, after we've seen them suffer a lot of electoral repression, we've seen their leadership in the case of Jamaat Islami being decimated, and we've seen whether security forces, intelligence agencies, or the judiciary being deployed against them to prevent them from engaging in a free and fair process. So maybe you could comment, Shruti, on how exactly these two parties, the BNP and the JI, as well as the other parties in the spectrum, of course, because there are quite a few parties involved here, how the opposition continues to do politics and strategizes when they're being uh, oppressed in so many different ways. And in particular, how have they changed their tactics in order to retain their support if they don't have that much representation in the parliament? If I can, uh, you know, analyze both the PNP and the Jamaat, uh, the four major political parties are normally BNP, the Jatiyo Party, and the Jamaat, who are of some electoral consequences. There are left political parties uh, uh, who are either and the religious pol- other religious political parties. The Ikkojo at one point of time had four candidates, uh, basically the Ulema party. But uh, currently, I think many of them is fragmented. Many of them have joined either the opposition or the ruling party. If you look at the BNP, obviously the current leadership who is within the country, Begum Khalida Jia, the two-time Prime Minister of Bangladesh, uh, she's under house arrest uh, after being convicted in, uh, you know, the Jia Orphanes case, which actually does not uh, make her eligible to contest the election. Moreover, she's also aging and not uh, keeping well health-wise, even to take any kind of active political role. Uh, because like, for example, in many of the party uh, meetings, the senior members will meet, that is Zoom meeting with uh, uh, her son, uh, Tariq Rahman, who is staying in London in exile. So therefore, some of the time I find a disconnect between the party leadership, which is based in London, and the people on the ground, because uh, the party structures are such that those people, you know, who play a very significant role in terms of, you know, organizing many of these um, protest marches uh, and, you know, other meetings, uh, they basically don't do themselves, but they always take direction from uh, London. So therefore, I find it a disconnect. Every leadership sitting in London, the workers and others are in uh, Bangladesh facing uh, the challenges which comes from the paramilitary forces, the police in terms of the arrest, uh, in terms of being jailed. So therefore, it becomes a little, you know, I find that disconnect. Uh, though obviously in 2018, when BNP decided to participate in the election, the decision to participate also came very late after, uh, you know, Tariq Rahman was convinced by the senior uh, political leaders that they must participate. And this time, I think uh, probably a year back, uh, they had taken a decision that they would not participate in the election if, um, you know, the caretaker regime is not there. Uh, the reason is that, you know, the party leadership, Tariq Rahman, believes that even if they participated in 2018 election, the election was completely uh, controversial and they only got very few seats, I think uh, six seats or something like that. But I really do not know how how even non-participation also benefits them. But of course, it's a different question whether Aumali even wanted the BNP to participate. So therefore, you know, the party is not uh, then in the opposition space uh, in the parliament uh, after 2014. And uh, of course, in 2018, uh, they were there, uh, six of them uh, were there. But uh, also at the same time, when you, you know, when you don't have a political presence and you don't do the mobilization, you are, you know, the people 
who really uh, campaign for you, you know, the, your cadre get very, very demoralized. So that is one of the reasons. As far as Jamaat is concerned, it is, uh, you know, it for the past two years have been, uh, you know, doing politics in a very subtle manner. They don't want to um, uh, get into a confrontation mode with the government. Uh, so therefore, the party's uh, approach, is, I said, as I said, is, is a much more long-term approach. As far as the left political parties are concerned, uh, you know, they, in a sense, so I, I would say that social role is much more significant in terms of, you know, um, they can, they get into, you know, to the street to protect certain values of the liberation one, which I don't see other political parties doing. Uh, the other ulema political parties, some of them are, you know, basically the Hafazat Islami currently uh, is uh, seen as close to the government. Uh, the Islami Sasuntantra Andalman, they also have put up, you know, they said that they have put up 300 candidates. They are going to put up 300 candidates, but I really don't know. But they are not of major consequences. But uh, if you take all the religious political parties together and put them against Jamaat, Jamaat is still strong, organized as a political force. My understanding is that, you know, on December 16th, we're talking about a situation where from late October to December, about 20,000 opposition activists are being imprisoned. Most of the, their top leaders are imprisoned. You know, New York Times wrote a report in July that about 2.5 million Bangladeshi opposition activists are facing cases, and each of them are facing cases in between dozen to 400 against each of them. And uh, they spend most of their time in courthouses. And recently, after the 28th rally, there are events that they've seen that opposition activists reportedly do not stay in their home at nights. Their livelihoods are taken, their family relationship has disrupted, and many of them are reportedly, according to the newspapers, are spending time in the river in boats and other places. Even so, it it has become the Bangladeshi main opposition party, which really matters. Jamaat doesn't matter as much. Is operating into some degree as an underground party without being underground. But what is interesting is that despite of this, on twenty on sixteen December, they organized a rally to celebrate the victory day. And in that day, a journalist from Reuters reported that he. He saw that at least 300,000 people participated in that rally. So, and he went on and speak with the people that, who are these people? Are they all BNP activists? Because when we're talking about, because our most of our discussion has been confined within the parties. But, you know, people play a lot of role where the parties participate in this politics. So his findings is that many of them are rickshaw pullers, day laborers, are people who work in garages, street vendors. The reason is, the rising price hike of essentials are biting quite hard to the people, and they be, and some of them told the Reuters journalist, um, and he shared that with me. It's been 15 years; we haven't seen this going down, and that's why we are using that opposition vehicle to protest. And finally, you know, Sruti's point is important that there is a disconnect. By but my understanding is that if you consider the hierarchical social structure of South Asia including India and Bangladesh, when party leaders, because they're elites most of the time, and in Bangladesh, they're, all of them are elite families, and there are no poor leader you'll find in Bangladesh. They all are rich, unfortunately. So you'll find, you know, when what Tarek Roman did, according to the non-public knowledge, is that he uses the digital technology. So he uses WhatsApp, he uses Zoom to reach out the root-level activists. And when they heard that they're talking about the son of 
former president and prime minister. According to the reports, they become quite energized. And that is the reason BNP is proving to be quite resilient at, the, at this time. And I want to finish with one uh, statement is that Bangladeshis are known as being resilient against the face of adversaries. If you look into what happened in 1971, if you look into the natural disaster and so forth, once they're they're convinced that they're morally, they're in the right side, they would resist all sorts of pressure. And I think that that sort of things is happening in the opposition camp at this moment. Because what happened is that according to a recent report, and the agriculture minister recently told the media that he that government even offered to release all the BNP activists if they participate in the election. So this repression was used as a bargaining chip to bring BNP to the election to boost the legitimacy of the election in the to the international observer. But interestingly, if there's a disconnect, people would have joined, right? I mean, this is a good chance to become a member of parliament. And you become a member of parliament means you become rich. And you buy flats in Dhaka, Sydney, New York, whatever, you know, the, how, how the things work. But none of them joined. And why is that? That is quite interesting. And so my theory is that the, this sort of leadership has been kind of proving to be quite strong at this moment and it is becoming resilient. And if you go to the studies of political parties in other countries, when there is repression, they become resilient. And, you know, the BNP is technically not an ideological party, nor is our league. I mean, more, their ideology is to keep the power and be rich. I, I'd be as simple as that. And within that within that frame, why would this people why would these BNP leaders who are imprisoned didn't join the election? It says a lot about what is happening in the opposition party. I think it's it's it is becoming resilient. And with this price hike and all this stuff, and um, you know, Shuti wrote in an article about the economy and, and other things. I think it is a bit different. There are slight sophisticated distinction that is going to unfold in 2024, comparing to what has been unfolded in 2018 or 2014. Fair enough. And Mubashar, you mentioned rising prices. You mentioned about uh, getting rich, uh, entering politics. And I think that's an interesting way to get into an election issue that I think we haven't yet discussed, which is the economy. So one of the interesting things about Bangladesh is that under Sheikh Hasina's tenure, you've seen rapid economic and industrial growth, particularly in textiles. But I think after the COVID pandemic, the macroeconomic outlook doesn't seem quite as rosy. Uh, there seem to be depleting foreign exchange reserves. There seems to be a request for a bailout to the IMF. So maybe you could talk a bit more about the economy. What is the state of the economy right now? And how important an issue is this in the election? So Bangladesh economy is, that is dollar crisis going on. I think that is, uh, I understand this from, you know, I'm not an economist from a, from a general perspective. I talk with people and they said there are dollar crisis going on. And it's quite important to the extent that you know, people go to travel or people need to pay for the LCs and all sorts of things. This is biting them hard, number one. Number two is that if the go and it, 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 is, it looks like Bangladesh is going ahead with the um, reform that IMF suggested. It means that I always, in most cases, I'm sorry, IMF suggests to reform the financial sector that it uh, comes with further price hike of energy and, and some, some other essentials. And that would be problematic. The core problem, I think, is that in Bangladesh, because of this long-term government, there are many syndicates. So the syndication doesn't only take place within the state institutes, it also takes place in business and all in many, you know, every sectors of the society has been syndicated. That means that in every sector, certain group of people 
who have certain political affiliation, which is uh, associated with the ruling party, benefited immensely. I'm not going to name them, but Bangladesh's biggest power supplier is the is among the top 10 Singaporean richest list. That gives a lot of indication of how this economy is running. So what I wanted to say that elites, there are the politics has become a good source of becoming rich quick. And one of the reasons that this US sanction, which I kind of put a generally stop on extrajudicial killing and enforced disappearances, is that people who benefit from this sort of politics, they tend to plan to retire to the West. So even though Bangladesh is not like it is not a democracy, they would like their uh, corrupt earned money to be protected in a liberal democracy. So the story of growth, absolutely it's true. There are a lot of economic development has happened. We've seen a young and upcoming IT entrepreneurs as well, apart from textile entrepreneurs and so forth. But the question always to me was that, was it widespread? And uh, I'm sure City has a lot to add on the, on, into that, but I don't think that growth was widespread. And that is why there are so, so that growth thrived over deprivation of a lot of people. And just to add by saying what I completely agree with um, versus uh, analysis. In fact, if you look at the composition of the member of parliament in Bangladesh, many of them, they come from a business family and therefore the tribe, this business is tribe. And this is not uh, very particular only with Aumri. That also happened during the BNP time. But this is a continuation. You know, you may have 70, now 80, 90. It has increased over the period of time. You see a very steady increase. Uh, second is that probably, you know, I felt when I spoke to some of the people on the street, my feeling was that uh, either people don't want to comment uh, on the current politics because Bangladeshis are very, very politically conscious. They would love to discuss politics. Uh, you know, anywhere you speak to them, they will make some comments. But many people, I felt this time, refrained from making a comment and uh, probably either they think that it's better not to comment and be on your job, whatever you are doing. Uh, so while there is a lot of infrastructure which has uh, come up with the investment of uh, China, India and uh, Japan in Bangladesh and uh, also at the same time, uh, you know, the absolute uh, poverty uh, also has increased. Uh, I really do not know what steps the government can take as he was also speaking about getting money from IMF means taking very hard decision as far as the economy is concerned. And the common people, in fact, price rise is something many, many people spoke about. You can really feel, uh, you know, how the price is affecting uh, the common people. I think that is somewhere uh, probably, you know, if you have a good opposition in the parliament, these are the issues which can be raised. So if the election is about seat sharing, then these are the issues which, not be, which will not be raised. And that, in fact, as, uh, you know, even Moasir was also pointing out uh, that this time the post-election scenario could be a bigger challenge compared to what it has been in 2014 and 2018. Right. And aside from the domestic players, what's very interesting in this election is how you have these different foreign actors participating in the geopolitics of Bangladesh that I haven't really seen before to this extent. The United States of America, the champion of freedom and democracy in the world when it's convenient, they've played a somewhat outsized role in Bangladesh this time around. And one of the things we've seen is increasing claims of American interference that seems to be resented by Sheikh Hasina and the Awami League, but is surprisingly celebrated by the BNP-led opposition. What is the U.S. doing in Bangladesh? Could you break down what 
the U.S. policy and role has been regarding trying to ensure free and fair elections? And more importantly, why is the U.S. doing this right now in Bangladesh? How does it align with Washington's geopolitical interests, given everything else in the world that's going on right now? That's a good question. One of the reasons U.S. decision, so maybe I'll go back. So in 2021, on the Human Rights Day, U.S. Uh, imposed sanction on Bangladeshi elite paramilitary force, Rapid Action Battalion, and uh, several of its officials for committing uh, grave human rights violation, including extrajudicial killing and enforced disappearances. And two of those officials um, later were promoted to the head of police, so IGP. The current police head is also a sanctioned uh, person by the United States. Too. Um, and after that, what we saw is that um, the rate of extrajudicial killing has slowly come down, so it's kind of stopped. And imagine this decision from a layman perspective living in Bangladesh, where uh, state forces will knock someone's door and get someone from their family and just kill them, or take them away. People, would, their family would not know whether they're alive or not. And there is no way to get justice. That where they will go, because it is the state that is that was allegedly committing these crimes. And within that scenario, when this whole thing stopped, it was celebrated by the human rights activists. It was celebrated by the opposition, obviously, because they have been at the forefront of this uh, uh, repression. And it was also celebrated by a lot of people uh, who are not politically associated either with BNP or Aumilik. But you know, if you live in a country and if you see there are greater uh, checks and balances on the state of power, you'll feel safe, safer. So from that perspective, that US decision was quite uh, popular in Bangladesh. But having said that, the whole election process, the the way the regional power like India and um, China and also Russia sided with, with openly sided with our league, and Americans are talking about free and fair election. But quite interestingly, after October twenty eighth. They haven't talked much, so there is there are a lot of speculation about what is happening because you know American, U.S., India, and America are also ally in in Quad, and it is an important diplomatic alliance to deter the um, influence of China. And to India, India made it clear, and for obvious reasons, from Indian perspective, is that it is an Indian national interest that Amelik continues, whereas America says that. It is America's national interest that democracy democracy comebacks to uh, Bangladesh, and that standoff is quite interesting. And to unpack what are the motivation, one of the motivation is quite um, obvious: is that to deter the influence of China in Bangladesh. They have uh, they 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 have been investing uh, in bridges, in in tunnels, in ports, and many other sectors. But so so Japan is doing the same. So is India is doing the same. So uh, one of the argument is that U.S. wants to deter China. Another argument is that U.S. some of the State Department officials really care about human rights, and there was a, a strong lobby from the human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, RFK Center for Human Rights within the Biden administration. And you know these things sometimes work with personal relationship and so forth. So that within this context, to sum up in one sentence, it seems to me that there are some tension between India and and the U.S. And 
how does it going to reflect on the broader alliance? That's a matter for exploration for future. Yeah, if I can add what uh, Mubasir was uh, saying, uh, in fact, uh, uh, when I looked at uh, US's reaction regarding the free and fair elixir and see complete absence of, uh, you know, that particular, you know, uh, that particular criteria in Pakistan, I find it obviously there are geopolitical reasons. Uh, second thing is that what I found it, uh, you know, little uh, was not, you know, very, very convinced. Uh, the opposition, in fact, took the US this research chipson that you know a little seriously they thought that probably us will be able to deliver a free and fair election which actually uh you know it's it's very difficult it could have been possible as you know you know us has many other interests uh, i always say that bangladesh need to thank the israelis uh especially the army leaguers, uh, because of the war in gaza the and the complete american attention is now there you know they don't even now bother about what is happening in 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 bangladesh uh, yes, interestingly, uh, India's position in uh, 2013 election when, you know, the uh, much criticized uh, Sujata Singh missile to Bangladesh where she insisted of multi-party election in Bangladesh, uh, which will be in India's interest. And that was very, very, criti very much criticized. But interestingly, both 2018 and now, officially, there is no statement uh, from India. Uh, it uh, statement has been that, uh, you know, it's uh, an internal affair of Bangladesh and let the Bangladesh constitution decide what kind of election they uh, uh, want to have. But if you look at this particular statement and compare it with some of the elections which has taken place in the recent past, uh, the Nepal election, uh, the Maldives election, the statement is, uh, you know, it, it is say that, uh, you know, it is uh, those for those countries to see what kind of election they want. Uh, so because India does not want to get into all this kind of uh, thing very openly in terms of you know, deciding with one or the other. But obviously, as Mubasir was saying, uh, because of the U.S. Uh, pressure, I think uh, Japan and China, uh, especially the Chinese who, who don't come up very openly in terms of statement, but uh, obviously, uh, the more you invest in, in a country, the more you'll give statement. We have seen that in the context of Nepal election. We have seen that in Sri Lanka. So therefore, the Chinese have very uh, clearly said uh, that, you know, they'll stand by Hasina. And because I, on the one hand, U.S. has geopolitical interest of getting Bangladesh uh, to Indo-Pacific, uh, to not not exactly the Quad, but to the Indo-Pacific, and that could be one of the reasons. In October, the Bangladesh, uh, September, I think Bangladesh came up with the Indo-Pacific strategy paper, uh, which earlier it had not. So, in a sense, you know, to placate to the U.S. interest. But then again, um, you know, I think uh, you know the kind of geopolitics which is taking place, obviously. Uh, it will depend on how Sekasira is going to move, but I will credit her compared to other, uh, you know, other countries in South Asia. She has managed to engage all the stakeholders. You know, it's not India versus China. You know, this is one country where is India and China and US and Japan. So it is not one versus the other. So in a sense, to some extent, she has been able to manage uh, the challenges. Such you know. Uh, a competition will uh, entail uh, in terms of uh, her, uh, uh, you know, space to maneuver uh, the geopolitics. So just to wrap up, we're going to see our first crucial election of 2024 in January. Uh, I think we predicted earlier that it's quite likely that Sheikh Hasina is going to retain power. But I guess to get your final thoughts, Sheikh Hasina is nearing her 80s, if I'm not mistaken. And Khaled Azia is ailing right now. There is a question that remains about their succession and consequently the future of party politics in Bangladesh. So after this election, how do you two view the party political dynamic and the succession in Bangladesh? 
who comes after Asina and would Tariq Rahman, you know, manage to sort of lead the party, whether it's in, based in London or in Dhaka, back to power? What, what do you guys think is going to happen with the future of Bangladeshi democratic politics? So Mubasar, you will go first? No, I'll go second. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> I would say you know successful plan in both these political parties, uh, you know, is uh, completely under wrap. Of course, you know the BNP does not have the succession problem as the Amelik has. Uh, you know, it's very clearly known that Tariq Rahman uh, is uh, the next leader of the BNP, and uh, within uh, the Amelik, of course, you know there are many many speculations. You know, there is. Uh, uh, I would say I would rest my case by thinking. You know, by um, in a sense, putting the name, probably I see Sangha Wazit uh, could be a replacement of Sheikh Hasina. And I'm just, it is complete speculation, but, uh, you know, I see her accompanying her mother. Uh, she's now, I think, regional director of WHO, so coming much more to the public space. Uh, so I think, uh, to me, she looks like, uh, you know, succeeding uh, Sheikh Hasina. I would, put, I would put it that So... The future of party politics in Bangladesh is, I think, as I agree with Shruti, uh, that the succession in BNP is quite settled. It is Tarek Raman's party at the moment, and he has widespread popular popularity within the party. About Aumili, I would disagree with Shruti. I would think the sister. I would think, <laughs> I think Sheikh Rehana, the uh, Sheikh Asinar's sister, probably the would be the uh, next leader of Army League. In terms of future of politics in Bangladesh, I would assume that we are going to see long-term low-key unrest for longer term, unless economy is fixed, unless people are filled that they are not pushed to the world. It is going to be a bit difficult journey um, in 2024. So that wraps up our conversation on the Bangladesh election. Smriti and Mubashar, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be coming back next month on the Pakistan election, which is also going to be quite interesting. So please stay tuned for that. Take care. And thanks again, Smriti and Mubashar. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you Tushar. <laughs>